know that this congregation is like almost everyone that you will visit. There are a lot of good cooks in this church uh, and they know how to present, uh, prepare uh, delicious meals and dishes uh, at, the pit, at the potluck or pitch-in on Sunday. I don't know whether you call it pitch-in or potluck down here, we, uh, but uh, there was sure a lot of good food there uh, and, and, and in evidence that there are a lot of good cooks in this congregation. But you know, I find that to be true almost everywhere. Uh, our sisters in Christ are typically also very good cooks. I, on the other hand, am not. I, don't, uh, I tell people I can't really even effectively boil water. You know, and, and so I, I stay out of the kitchen and my wife, Cindy, would be quick to tell you he doesn't even try when it comes to cooking. Uh, that's not, that's not, I'm not into that. It does confuse her a little bit though because when the boys and I used to go backpacking and camping uh, in the mountains, I would be the one who would cook over the campfire. She says, how can you cook over a campfire and you can't cook in this modern kitchen? Well, it's different, it's different. But I do know something about cooking, and that is that when you want to prepare a recipe or a dish, you have to have all the right ingredients. You have to have all the right ingredients, and they have to come together in the, in the right combination and in the right order if you want the, the dish or the recipe to turn out right. H how would this be? Let's say that the recipe that you're going to fix calls for baking soda, but you don't have that exactly, and so you, you substitute for yeast instead of baking soda. And it calls for self-rising flour, but you don't have that, so you use cornstarch. And, and you're supposed to use vanilla flavoring, but you're out of that, and so you substitute cocoa. What would be the result? Well, I'm not even sure the result of that would be edible. <laughs> But it sure wouldn't be what you set out to, to fix because you haven't followed the recipe. You haven't put all the right ingredients together and in the right order. So if you want to make sure that a recipe turns out right, you get all the right ingredients. I think that's just obvious and easy to understand. Tonight we want to discuss getting things to turn out right spiritually. We want our lives to be right with God. And I'd like to suggest to you that in order to do that, we have to get all the right ingredients together. If it's going to be right, if it's going to turn out right, we need all the right ingredients. In order for us to pursue this study uh, thoroughly, we're going to look at the case of a man who learned and obeyed God's truth way back uh, in the first century, just after the beginning of Christianity. We're going to look at his story specifically, and I want to suggest to you that he is a fellow who got all the right ingredients together in the right way to affect his eternal salvation. And we'll look at his case uh, in just a moment. Let me stop to thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, right here in the, the middle of the central Alabama rainforest. Uh, we have come together uh, to worship God and we're thankful that you have made it here safely and that you had a priority to be here tonight. Thank you so much for that. It, it is a great encouragement and, and we're glad that we have this opportunity. It's raining outside, it's nice and dry and comfortable inside and we're glad to be able to come together to worship God. As we study together, uh, as I've been saying all week, 
please uh, observe the scriptures as they are used and make sure that there's no misuse of the scriptures. We don't want to do that by, in any way. And so carefully observe the scriptures. When we've gone through this study, if you have any question about anything that has been said, please bring that to my attention. I'd be glad to entertain any questions. And I won't even get mad if you disagree with something that has been said. The solution to that, of course, will be we'll have to get our Bibles out, we'll have to open them up, and we'll have to find out for sure what God has said. We, we believe that it's certainly possible and even necessary for us to understand the Bible alike. But again, I thank you for being here tonight. The story that I want to use as the basis of our analysis about right ingredients is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that's found in Acts chapter 8. And so I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, and we are just going to stay in that text tonight and learn what this fella did in order to be saved, to be forgiven of his sins, and to have that great hope of heaven in eternity. In Acts chapter 8, begin reading with me at verse 26, Acts 8 verse 26. The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south into the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Now let's pause our reading there for just a minute to make a few observations. And I, I want to point out to you that I think that the first necessary ingredient here that this man got right was that he had a right attitude. His attitude is the sort of attitude that we need to possess. If we want to be saved, if we want to go to heaven when we die, we need to have an attitude like this man had. First of all, I would suggest that his attitude was one of reverence toward God. As we were just reading there in verse 27, it says that uh, as Philip rose and went, he beheld a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure. And pay special attention to this. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Well, this was a man of prestige and power and influence. He was a high-ranking government official in his home country of Ethiopia. He was a practicing Jew. How that came to be, we do not know. Many people speculate that he was a proselyte to the Jews' religion. We just don't know that, and it's not really essential to our study in order to know that. But he was clearly a practicing Jew. And it's impressive to me that a man in his position, again, a high-ranking government official, that a man in his position would travel so far in order to worship God. Have you ever taken a map out and looked at just the geography of the territory that this man covered to leave his home country of Ethiopia, to travel to Jerusalem to worship? That distance is farther than from here in Birmingham to New York City. It's well over a thousand miles one way. This is not a trip that he would accomplish in a day or two. This is a trip that would have taken several weeks 
in order to get there and to get back home. This was a long and arduous trip. What's additionally interesting is that because of his physical condition, a eunuch, according to the Old Testament law of Moses, and you can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 23 about verse 1, because of his physical condition, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he would have been excluded from most all of the activities at the temple site because he was a eunuch. And so he would have to come and offer his gifts and then leave with others to offer those on his behalf. Let me ask you something. Would you have even driven across town tonight to come to this place to show your reverence to God, knowing that when you got here, they say, thank you, but you'll have to go on. You can't come in. Now, I don't think very many people would have done that. That's what this man did. He traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. When he got there, he's going to be primarily excluded from the activities at the temple because he was a eunuch, and yet he came anyway. And so, again, I want to impress upon you that this fellow clearly did then have a, a deep reverence from God for God that would motivate him to make that long trip. I think it's also clear that his attitude included a desire for greater knowledge. Verse 28 says that he was returning. Notice, and sitting in his chariot read Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm thinking that if this was me, I might have thought along this vein. I've made this long trip all the way to Jerusalem now. Man, it was a long way. And I've done my responsible duties there in Jerusalem, and I'm going home. And I just want to get home. It is enough. At this point, all I'm interested in is getting home. Not this man. Uh, as, as he's traveling home after uh, going through all that effort to be in Jerusalem, as he's going home, he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. He is almost certainly reading from a scroll. They obviously didn't have printed pages like we have today. And so almost certainly he was reading a handwritten copy on a scroll. And I want you to try and imagine in your mind Going down this road, it had to be a very rough, primitive road, riding in a chariot, uh, trying to unroll that scroll from one end and roll it up on the other, bouncing along in the chariot, trying to read that handwritten text. I'll tell you, that would, i got to believe that would have been a very challenging endeavor, and yet he did it. He was willing to do it. He wanted to do it. He desired to have more knowledge about God. And, and I'm telling you, that's a commendable thing. That's a worthy attitude. That's the kind of attitude that we need to possess. So reverence for God and desire for knowledge. But I'm going to tell you something else about this man that was very, very important is that he was humble in his spirit. The reason I know that is what's said there in verses 30 and 31. And Philip ran thither to him, heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said to him, Understandest thou what thou readest? Now stop there for a minute. Don't read the rest of that just yet. So picture this scene in your mind, if you will. Here's this guy, this high-ranking government official, and he's coming down along this road. Now, I just was trying to emphasize this was a, a, a rough, a crude, a primitive form of transportation uh, in, in our mind. Uh, but if you were there at the time, this was, a, this was a prestigious looking outfit here. This was no Volkswagen chariot. This was a Cadillac chariot. This is a high ranking government official here after all. 
And so here he comes down along this road in his Cadillac chariot. What's he see? He sees, what is this guy? A hitchhiker? Is this guy just hitchhiking? You know, just a fellow by the side of the road. I'm a high ranking government official. This is just a guy by the side of the road, maybe hitchhiking. And that hitchhiker has the audacity to say, do you understand what you're reading? What do you mean? What do you mean do I understand? Of course I understand. And you just get out of my way and leave me alone. And by the way, you shouldn't even really be speaking to me. I'm a high ranking government official here. He did not say that, right? What he said was, how can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip uh, would come up and sit with him. I'll tell you, in all of that, I, I believe we see that this fellow surely had a real humble spirit about him. Um, if everybody had that sort of attitude, I'm going to tell you, we'd go a long way toward resolve, resolving religious division and contention. If people were honest and humble enough to say, you know, I really don't understand that. And if you can help me understand that, I sure would appreciate it. If we had that sort of humility, it would go a long, long way. And so he had a humble spirit. And I'm going to add that he also was open-minded. And I'm just going to say we'll see that as we continue to study his story. We'll see that he was willing to change. Sadly, people are not typically willing to change. They get sort of locked in to what they believe, and they very often won't even consider anything else. They're not open to any other sort of reasoning. This man was open-minded. I heard a fella described a while back. One guy was describing this other fella, and he said about him, he said, he's got all the answers. He's just waiting for the questions. <laughs> well, sadly, there are a lot of people like that in the world, you know. They're not open to anything other than what they already believe. They won't even consider anything else. Not this man. This man from Ethiopia had the right attitude. So the first necessary ingredient in this process is that man himself, that he possessed a wonderful attitude and the kind of attitude that we all need. I want to tell you, though, that that right attitude in this man was met with the right message. He heard the right message. Go back to your text with me a minute and read beginning again at verse 32. In verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Let's stop there again for a minute and talk about the message that Philip the evangelist taught this man. The first thing that was right about the way Philip approached this teaching opportunity was that he began at the right place. You know, all teachers, if you're going to be a good teacher, you have to know where your student is, what they already know, and what they still yet need to learn. You need to find out where they are, and you need to start there. You know, all good teachers do that. For instance, a, a math teacher, if you're teaching math, what are you going to teach? You're going to teach 
multiplication first or addition first? Well, you can't teach multiplication until you have already mastered addition, right? You, because you have to know how to add in order to multiply. You have to know how to subtract in order to divide. So you, you teach addition and subtraction before you teach multiplication and division. You've got to do it in that order. And you've got to bring your students along. You, you've got to progress them through the necessary steps. That's just understood in, in teaching. That's the way it has to be done. Philip used that approach. He did a great job here. He began, notice it says there in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preaching to him Jesus. Obviously, as we said already, this man was a practicing Jew. He had actually been to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. And so he knew about God. He didn't know about Jesus. And so he needed to be taught about Jesus. And Philip began at that same scripture and taught him about Jesus. What Philip did in the process of this is that he linked Old Testament prophecy with New Testament fulfillment. I know many of you are fully aware of what's recorded in all of, the, of chapter 8 of Acts. And you will remember that in the first half of Acts chapter 8, this Philip, the same teacher, had been in Samaria. And he had done a wonderful job of converting effectively the whole city of Samaria. In Samaria, it's interesting that in order to prove his message was true, Philip used miracles. Philip was a man empowered of the Holy Spirit to perform miracles. And in Samaria, the proof of his message was miracles. He doesn't work a miracle here. He doesn't work a miracle with the Ethiopian eunuch. Instead, to prove his message, he uses Old Testament prophecy. And he links the Old Testament prophecy with fulfillment that had just occurred in the life of Jesus. Now, prophecy is a powerful thing. Uh, prophecy, we understand prophecy just means to proclaim a proclamation of truth. But much of prophecy involved foretelling future events. Now, that wasn't exclusively what prophecy was, but very often prophecy foretold future events. And that's what we're talking about here. The prophet Isaiah had, had foretold some things that were to happen in the future. Acts chapter 8 verse 32 says, The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth. You know that text, don't you? You know where that's from. That's got to be uh, probably the most famous prophetic prop proclamation about the coming Messiah. That's Isaiah chapter 53, right? We know that text. And so that just happened to be where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip encountered him. Uh, and, and so he wanted to know, who's the prophet talking about here? And Philip was able to link what Isaiah had prophesied with what had just happened in the life of Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Let me ask you a question. So the baseball uh, division tournaments leading up to the World Series just about to take place. Uh, what if tonight I could predict the two teams that will be in the World Series? I'm going to predict I've always sort of been a Braves fan, so I'm going to predict the Braves are going to be there. 
And, and I don't think you can ever count out the New York Yankees. I know they got to win a game tonight if they're going to get into the playoffs. They're in a wild card game tonight. Uh, with the Red Sox. But if, if, if they win tonight, they'll go on to the divisional tournaments. And I'm going to predict, I'm just going to go out on a limb, I'm going to predict that the Yankees will make it to the World Series. What if it turns out that way? What if in a, in a couple, three more weeks, yeah, it's World Series time and it's the Yankees and the Braves. Would you be impressed? I don't know. Somebody said, I don't know about that. You know, that may be a little more than a lucky guess. You know, maybe, maybe not so impressive. Okay, well, let me, let me go a little further then. I'm going to predict, because I'm a Braves fan, I'm going to predict the Braves win the World Series. They beat the Yankees four games to two in the World Series. What well, if it turns out that way? Would you be impressed? Somebody said, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure that's very impressive. Okay, let me go a little further in. I'm going to say, Braves over Yankees, four games to two, and I'm going to give you the exact score of every game in order. Would you be impressed with that? Come on now, you're going to have to get impressed here somewhere, right? Would that be impressive? That would be impressive, wouldn't it? That'd be crazy impressive. Well, I'm talking about things here that are just a few weeks off, right? If I could predict that with accuracy, what an amazing thing. Think about what Isaiah did. Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus. And he predicted in exact details the things that would happen in the life of Jesus. You talk about impressive, that's impressive. And that's the power of prophecy as an evidence for our faith. And, the, and Philip was able to use that powerful evidence of prophecy with the Ethiopian eunuch and convince him that the Messiah has come. The one that Isaiah was prophesying about has come. And Jesus is his name. That was a powerful proof. And, and I think it really showed that Philip was a great teacher. He began where the man was, and then he took that very text that he was reading, Isaiah 53, and showed him that Isaiah was talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was just crucified in Jerusalem, but who has risen from the dead, he was able to show that connection. I'll tell you something else that you just have to notice here, is that Philip preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch, and that included a doctrinal thing. Specifically, it included baptism. You know, some of our religious friends want to criticize us when we teach about something like baptism, you know, I know you people, you're all the time talking about baptism. Baptism, baptism, you must be baptized. You must be baptized for the remission of sins. But don't you know that when you press that doctrine of baptism, that's a divisive thing. We don't all agree about baptism. And so you all should stop pushing this matter of baptism. You know, they even have a, an expression that they use, preach the man and not the plan. Just preach the man. Preach about Jesus. We can all agree about Jesus. Jesus is wonderful. We can just talk about Jesus. Preach the man, not the plan. That's what they tell us. You know what we see in this account? Is that it's impossible to separate the two. You cannot preach Jesus without preaching the doctrine of Christ. You can't preach the man without his plan. They go hand in hand together. Notice there in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began the same scripture. Notice it says, and preached unto him Jesus. So that's what he did. He preached Jesus. 
But then notice verse 36. It says, and as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Wait a minute. He says, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? How did he know anything about baptism? It just says Philip preached Jesus to him. How does he know anything about being baptized? Well, the point is obvious, isn't it? When you preach Jesus, you preach the doctrine of Christ, and that includes a doctrinal thing like baptism. It all goes together, and you cannot separate them. And so I want to suggest to you that the evangelist Philip did a wonderful job here in reaching out to this man. The, the man himself, the Ethiopian eunuch, was very impressive in regards to the attitude that he already, already possessed when this encounter began. And then Philip, very impressive in the message that he taught to him, but we're not done yet. The, the, the other right ingredient is the right response. The eunuch responded the way he should have. Let's read again to the end of the chapter. We're back. Let's go back at verse 36, Acts 8, 36. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. I want to suggest to you that when the, when the Ethiopian man heard the message, he provided the right response to the message. First of all, I want to point out to you that he took the message personally. He saw how it applied to him directly. You know, this was not just some interesting theological discussion. We're going to talk about God and things pertaining to God. And we're just going to have a deep, you know, philosophical discussion of these important matters of theology. It'll just be an interesting time uh, as we ride along in the chair. It's kind of boring, ride along in the chariot. And this guy, he, he's, he's inclined to talk about it. I'm willing to talk about it. We'll just have a good discussion here. That's, that's not what happened, is it? This, this man saw that what he was being taught applied to him personally. Did you notice there in verse 36, what doth hinder me to be baptized? See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And so he took the message personally. And we've got to do that. We all have to do that. When we're studying the Word of God, whatever we are studying, whatever subject it might be that we're studying from the Word of God, I've got to see how that applies to me. It's not just interesting to talk about it philosophically. This has to be a life-changing activity. As I read and learn and know more about what God's Word says, I've got to see how that applies to me. And the Ethiopian eunuch did that. I want to suggest to you that in his right response, it's clear that he understood the urgency of obedience. You understand the idea of an urgent response to something? Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say that you, you get in bed this evening and, and, and you have just about slipped off to sleep and just about the time you get to sleep, there comes a knock on the front door. And so, you, you know, you get up and you answer the door and there's a man there 
and he's dressed in a utility worker's uniform. And he says, I just want to advise you that there's a water main leak just down the street here from your house. And we're going to work on that right now, but uh, you're not going to have any water pressure for the next several hours. There's, the, there's just a bad leak in the water system. Okay. All right. You really didn't have to wake me up to tell me that, but okay, you know, no big deal. Now, I want not, no urgency. My point is there's no urgency. I want, I want to contrast that with, so you get in bed, the knock comes at the front door, you answer the door, the man there in a utility worker's uniform, and he says, we're here to tell you there's been a rupture in the gas line just down the street from your house. We're evacuating this neighbor. There could be a massive explosion. You've got to get out. You've got to get out right now. That's a totally different situation, isn't it? There's urgency now. You've got to do something. You've got to do something immediately. Well, the Ethiopian eunuch understood there was urgency about him responding to the message that he heard. Why didn't Philip say to him when he said, see, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Why didn't Philip say, well, you don't have, no big deal. It's not, it's not urgent. You don't have to. It'd be nice maybe to be baptized, but certainly you don't need to do it right now. You're on a long trip. You've got a long way to go before you get home. You go on home. And when you get down there in Ethiopia, and after you've had a chance to rest up from your trip, find someone down there to baptize you. It's a good thing to do. It's not urgent. No big deal. No urgency to it. You can do it when you get a chance. That's not the way this story unfolds, is it? That's not even close to the way this story unfolds. He stopped his trip. He went to the immediate somewhat, it's not a terrible inconvenience, but you have to think it's somewhat of an inconvenience to stop his trip and be baptized right there, right there on the spot. What does that tell you about baptism? If you didn't know anything else about baptism, what does that tell you about baptism? Wouldn't you agree that teaches the necessity of baptism, the urgency of baptism, that you're not saved until you are baptized for the remission of sins? Now, we can go a lot of other places in the New Testament to prove that point. And we're not going to do that tonight. But I'm arguing that we've got that point proved right here in this text alone. We can find a lot of confirming text to prove that as well. But this text proves the urgency and necessity of baptism. I'll tell you what else we see here, and that is that baptism, Bible baptism, is immersion in water. It's amazing to me that there's a controversy about this in the religious world, but sadly there is. And there are people, there are religious groups, when, that, when they do practice baptism, they practice baptism by sprinkling water, or maybe by pouring some quantity of water on a person. And then there are others like us who believe that Bible baptism must be by complete immersion in water. Who's right about that? Well, again, I think we can find lots of information in the New Testament to, to give a definitive answer to that question. We're just staying in this text tonight. This text answers that. It tells us what baptism is, what Bible baptism is. In Acts 8, verse 38, it says, He commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What does it tell you about baptism? Well, that clearly indicates that baptism is immersion, right? If baptism was just sprinkling, then Philip could have stopped at a mud puddle in the road and got enough water to sprinkle a little bit on this guy. 
He didn't do that. If, it, if baptism was just pouring, he could have stooped down by the water and got him a cup full of water and, and poured it over the fellow's head. He wouldn't have had to get wet. The other guy wouldn't have had to get very wet. Instead, they went down both into the water. They both had to be in the water. And he baptized him. Years ago, I saw an artist's rendition of the baptism of the Ethiopian. I, 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 I've never come across it again. I so wish I had saved a copy of it. You know, artists throughout the centuries have tried to depict various Bible stories. And, and so some artists had tried to draw a picture of what it might look like when Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. And so the picture showed sort of a, an oasis type of a sitting in a desert area. And that may have been accurate, you know. And, and there's a pool of water there. And it shows two men standing in the water, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And it shows the one who was obviously supposed to be Philip with his hand cupped and he's pouring water over the man's head. You know, that was about the dumbest picture as you could possibly imagine. That's just ridiculous. If that's all the water he needed, he sure didn't have to wade in waist deep in order to get that much, right? The fact that they both went down into the water in order to accomplish this baptism, I think is a proof positive that Bible baptism is a baptism by immersion. So he took the message personally. He saw it was an urgent thing that needed to be done immediately and without delay. He was baptized by immersion. There's one other point that I want to make here that I think is important. Was there any emotion in this story? Uh, you know, is, your, is religion supposed to be emotional? Well, it really is. I think, there, I think we should have an emotional Involve, our emotions should be involved when we're talking about doing the will of God. But I want you to notice where the emotions came in this story. In verse 39 it says, When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing! Right there is emotion, right? Rejoicing is an emotion. Where did the emotions come in here? Well, they came in after he had been taught, reasonably listened and understood and obeyed. The emotions came afterwards, after he had obeyed. The emotions came after he had done the things in order, that were necessary in order to be saved. The emotions came last. Sadly, some of our religious friends want to get that all twisted up. And a lot of our religious friends get a feeling. That's the first thing that happens. They get a feeling and then they say, based upon their feeling, they claim they've been saved. And so the feeling produces the salvation, according to them. How was it here in this Bible story? His salvation produced his emotion instead of vice versa. You see that? I think that's an interesting thing to observe because, again, sadly, a lot of our religious friends have got that wrong. And so there you go. All the right ingredients the right attitude, the right message, and the right response. You got to get it that way. You got to put the ingredients in there. You got to put all the ingredients in there. They got to be there in the right way. The Ethiopian eunuch got it right. With Philip's assistance, he got it right, and he was saved. He became a child of God. He had that hope of heaven in eternity. I want to engage one more 
little exercise with you before we conclude tonight. Uh, if, if you will, let me try my hand at computer-generated graphics. I'm not good at that, okay? So, so bear with me here. I'm going to try to get the computer to draw us a little map of that general geographical area where this all happened. So I'm going to start out and I'm going to say that's the Sea of Galilee. And out of the Sea of Galilee comes the Jordan River and it runs into the Dead Sea. And that over there, that's the Mediterranean, okay? So this is, this is the land of, this is Canaan land, the land of Palestine, the, the, where, where the Israelites were. I think you hopefully can sort of recognize that map. On that map, Jerusalem would be about there where that red dot is. That's where the Ethiopian eunuch had been to worship God and he was heading home. He was on his way back to North Africa to Ethiopia, and so he was heading in that direction. All right, you with me so far? He's going back home to Ethiopia, and he's riding in a chariot. As we said, pretty nice chariot. I mean, rough, rough by our transportation standards, but, but in that day, he's a high government man. He's got a fine chariot. He's heading home. Now, when this story starts, Philip is in the city of Samaria. We know that from the first half of the chapter. And on this map, Samaria would be about there. Did you notice there when we were reading, it says uh, in verse uh, 26, the angel of the Lord spake to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south to the way that goeth down from Jerusalem into Gaza, which is desert. So the Spirit of the Lord told Philip, Go. But he's in Samaria when he gets that call. And so he heads off to rendezvous with this man near Gaza down here, and that's about where the rendezvous took place. Now, if you look at that map, what you realize is the eunuch had a faster travel. He, he was traveling faster. He had about half as far to go. Philip was on foot and had about twice as far to go. Now think about that a minute. Philip had to leave Samaria a day or two days before the eunuch left Jerusalem in order to get to the rendezvous point where this teaching opportunity would take place. The scripture plainly tells us that the Spirit of the Lord had, had directed Philip to go there. And so Philip is on his way to a potential rendezvous with a teaching subject, and that teaching subject hadn't even started on his trip yet, and they met up. And so there was clearly, God's hand was miraculously involved in bringing the teacher and the student together. Would you agree with me? But here's what I think is interesting. There's no indication that the Ethiopian eunuch ever knew anything about that. There's no indication that Philip ever said anything. I was told to come here. The Spirit of the Lord directed me to come here and talk. There's no indication that what happened instead. A preacher taught Jesus to a man who was open and receptive to the message. He believed it, and he obeyed it, and he was saved. It's the same thing that happens today, right? Hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And so the story of the Ethiopian eunuch is an old story. I know you all have studied it many times before. But to me, it's a story that just doesn't grow old because it's all there. Everything is there about what we must do to be saved. And that's, a, that's, that's the most important question of life, right? What must I do to be saved? 
we got all the answers right there in that one text. Thanks for listening tonight. We hope it's been helpful. As we're about to conclude, we're going to sing a song of invitation, and we're going to ask you, have you done those necessary things? Have you put all those ingredients together in your own life? We don't even need to repeat the plan of salvation, because right? we've just been studying it for our whole time. I just ask you, have you done what the Ethiopian eunuch did? Have you obeyed God? Is, are you saved? If not, we hope you'll make that decision without delay. If, if you need more information and want to study more, just say so. If you're a Christian already, but you've slipped back and not been serving the Lord faithfully, we beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.